Hi, everyone. Welcome to What's Your Why, a podcast that showcases the greatness of people through their life stories. Each episode will capture insight into the lives of people just like you and I, with the intention to connect, align, and create inspiration for and with our listeners. Stay with us through our What's and Why segment, where we dive into our guest perspective with some thought-provoking questions that just might be right up your alley. I'm your host, Helen Dillon, and thanks for joining us. Now let's get into it. I think I take every stop along the way and I take the best parts of it and that's who I am. Uh, So I'm a teacher through experience and through pressure and adversity that helps me push people. I, I want riding to help you become a better human who rides. Hi everyone, thanks for joining me again for another episode of What's Your Why? Over the past few weeks, I had the wonderful opportunity of sitting down with a gentleman named Charlie Moorcroft, a name that may be familiar to some of you, but for others, maybe not. So please allow me. Charlie's a wonderful soul who's most prominently known as equestrian trainer to the stars, most notably their kids. But he also has a not-so-secret life operating Charlie's Animals in conjunction with the Charlie Moorcroft Conservation Foundation, a foundation created to assist with funding for animal rescues, sanctuaries, and all things in between. He graciously joined us to chat about all the amazing things his foundation's doing, and more importantly, how he incorporates knowledge and education for both nature and animals, introduces, inspires, and instills it into the hearts of the youngest aspiring equestrian, not to mention all those non-equestrians too. Please listen on to learn more, and I hope you enjoy meeting my new friend, Charlie Moorcroft. Hi there, my name is Charlie Moorcroft, and first and foremost, thanks for having me. I'm always excited to get to talk about my story and my journey. I live in Wellington, Florida, which is an amazing uh, area in South Florida, it's subtropical. What brought me here were the horses, and the weather brought the horses here, and then the horses brought me here, and then the weather kept me here. So during the winter, we may be really inundated with thousands and thousands and thousands of equestrian families, horses, people, uh, veterinarians, farriers, saddle companies, all sorts of of, uh, amazing equestrian disciplines. And then slowly, uh, starting in April, things start to die down. And then the people that have made Wellington their home or maybe have families or kids will stay until school's out. And then by June 1st, really it turns into the most magical, sleepy, stormy town that anyone would ever want to live in. Oh, nice. We love that. And my business is in the equestrian field. I'm a trainer, which is a weird word. I wouldn't say I actually train a lot of horses, but that's kind of a catch-all phrase that uh, professionals in the equestrian world go by. So I guess I am a trainer. I used to ride a lot. I don't ride so much anymore. But really what I am is an educator and a teacher and an instructor. And I'm so fortunate enough to be able to teach kids on horses and ponies and participate in the life lessons that that brings them in addition to just the competitive nature of horseback riding. I think that's an amazing outlook. A lot of people really enjoy the company of kids, but I can imagine that it's a very, very challenging environment that you choose to operate in on a daily basis. I'm excited to watch the progress and watch the relationship that kids, especially girls, form with their ponies and the journey it takes them on. And I guess the biggest thing is the feedback from parents, teachers, grandparents, family members about confidence in themselves and communicating. And I guess the power that riding and showing gives to these small humans and helps them really say no to peer pressure and have more confidence in their lives. And, you know, teachers will say after they started riding animals, they would raise their hand more in class, sit with a different crowd at lunch, more engaging in recess. Grandparents will say, you know, they're communicating better, looking you in the eye. We're pretty strong about rules and values and respect. And that's something that I'm constantly aware of. Respect yourself, respect your animal, respect your family, and appreciate the commitment that everyone has made to allow you to participate. And not really the money part of it. I try never to talk about money, but 
the time commitment, the it's not for everyone. So if your family's going to allow you to do it and drag your carcass here to get on, then we don't do crybabies, frankly. Yeah, yeah. I've heard that correlation a lot, that horses influence confidence. How do you think that that happens? Maybe walk me through that a little bit. Well, I'm unique in the fact that I like to have riders on smaller animals that are really size appropriate. Uh, Some places put them on larger horses. I find that the ratio has to really match. The temperament of the animal has to match. The strengths and weaknesses of the rider has to match. So therefore, they can have the skills they need to accomplish uh, controlling 600 to 1500 pounds of animal and get them to listen and do it with compassion and just the feeling it gives them the freedom, the movement, and the fact that they're in charge and they get to work on different skills. It adds so much to them as humans that they have no idea. I know that a lot of equestrian athletes have come through your program throughout the years. I think that you and I first met, you probably don't even remember, but maybe 20 years ago, I was probably working in Ingate at some horse show and maybe you and your partner Jeff were there at the time. And I know of done a lot of work with Jeff and his judging, but uh, out of context, out of mind, that's for sure. I am familiar with the athletes that have come through your program, that's for sure. Hopefully I was polite. I get a little tunnel vision. Oh, always. <laughs> hopefully I was. I always come to these conversations by saying, well, hopefully I wasn't having a bad day, as anybody in the equestrian business can understand. You know, competition can bring out the best in us and, and sometimes the worst of us and their stresses and the hours it takes. If you're on a way show and you're just not sleeping at all and you're running around like an idiot, emotions get in the way and scheduling and conflicts. And sometimes that role that you had is a real thankless job that I just hope that I was remembering to uh, be appreciative, which most of the time I am, but sometimes you can just forget your perspective. I can wholeheartedly assure you and say, yes, you were never anything but pleasant and kind. It was always a pleasure working with you. Well, one of the challenges, you you touched on it with different athletes, again, being in Wellington, Florida, we are surrounded by literally the best of the best in our industry, in our sport. And because I apparently am patient and obviously I can teach, I mean, I can, I can teach fine. I can ride fine. I can do all that easy. But it's the it's the way to really speak kid that I think separates me from most. Well, never mind the fact that no one really wants to do what I do. But that to the side, it, it does attract uh, maybe family members of some of the really talented riders, veterinarians, owners, you know, trainers in our sport. So uh, I'm lucky enough to be surrounded and included in some of their inner circles. And the facility that we choose to work out of is a real co-op experience. There's different disciplines. There's some dressage riders. There's some jumper riders. There's some great riders. There's some medium riders. There's a lot of amateurs. So I'm I'm constantly under a microscope, which I really enjoy, and I'm constantly being monitored. And that raises the bar and makes me have to perform. It brings out the best in me because I like a challenge and I like pressure. With that said, there's another component to the facility, which is there's a 15-acre man-made body of water whether it's a pond or a lake or a you know moat, I don't really know what it is, but it's in South Florida, they dig down to get base and they take the base up and then they build homes on it. So when you dig a hole, it fills with water. So there's this huge body of water and there's a track that goes around it and there are alligators, some snakes, oh wow, tons of fish, everything from you know butterflies to dragonflies to all sorts of uh, different birds. And I use that, uh, never mind turtles, I forgot that. It's my favorite part. I use that as a real teaching opportunity to talk about life and nature and whether it's crows coming down and raiding nests of softshell turtles that just laid them. You know, just the, the journey it takes these riders on is fascinating to me. And, you know, you can kind of read your crowd if they're younger, if they're two, three, and four, you know, you're not going to be real specific about it. But if they're maybe the older, still kid, but older group, their questions are amazing. So it leads to a lot of great conversation. And that's even without talking about the crazy collection that resides at our home. So I use the teaching 
I'm sorry to interrupt. Is that what inspired you to introduce that into your life? You're going to have to interrupt me because I talk too much, which I apologize, kind of. That's okay. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I was raised in Connecticut from a large family. My mother was a teacher. And I think it was, she was also really religious, which I don't really, it's not something that's interesting to me at this point in my life, but it, as a kid, it was. So I think when you add mm-hmm. a religious Catholic upbringing with Catholic schools and, and being raised in a large family by a woman who was a teacher, who was extremely strong and clear, it teaches you to give back and to communicate and to educate and having a large family of three brothers. So that pretty much taught you to mm-hmm. find a way to get along with everyone just to, if you want to get what you want, there's got to be a way to get there. So that's just a nice background. But the parts of me, I was thinking about this earlier, the, the parts of me where I felt most whole as a human were when I was riding myself or out with animals that I raised or outdoors, whether it was walking in a stream or out in a rowboat or riding my bike to the barn by myself so I could be around the animals. And a lot of it was isolated in a way where I did it. I just relied on myself to have that experience. So I guess when you add all of that, plus I've tried every career imaginable and I always went back to outdoors and horses. Yeah. You know, in lots of different disciplines. I've lived all over the country, which is fascinating. And I think I take every stop along the way and I take the best parts of it. And that's who I am. Uh, so I'm a teacher through experience and through pressure and adversity that helps me push people. I, I want riding to help you become a better human who rides. I don't care how much we win. I want to win every class we go in, but but not without grace and sportsmanship. So I guess I'll talk about my collection now. So living in South Florida. Before you touch on that, I actually just wanted to ask about a quote that I read that you had said. You said in a publication that you're always either pulling someone up or you're being inspired by somebody. And I'd love for you to talk around that a little bit. That's pretty much the nature of my business. There's always someone more experienced than you, a writer, and there's always someone that needs to look up to you or wants to look up to you. And I try and impress that upon students that at some point, five years from now, I'm going to say to you, look, this little kid needs help. Get off your pony, get on that pony, you know, wrestle it to the ground, bite it near, do what you have to make it a winner and, and make that kid feel empowered and let them know that you were once them. And, and that's part of what we do. We use kids to help kids. Use is the wrong word, but we inspire. I, I want the kids to know that they are role models and they are powerful and that they are affecting the next group. And I want the kids that are coming up to know that those were once them. So it's never good to be the best at anything or the worst at anything. And I try not to use those words, best and worst. I try and use experience. This girl's more experienced than you. This boy's less experienced than you. Not being sexist, that just came out that way. You know, and and they were once there also. And I also don't do cookie cutter lessons. You know, some people, people call me all the time and say, okay, how can I start riding with you? And I always say, I'm probably not very nice, but I would say, I want to meet you and look in the eye and get a vibe. And if I like you, you can come. If not, there's other people for you. And they say, oh, wow. Well, how long is the lesson? And I said, I don't wear a watch. So there's might be one kid in the ring and then it will be yeah. very efficient and maybe a shorter experience. And if there's 10 kids in the ring, well, you might be on for an hour and a half mm-hmm. or whatever. But, you know, we don't overdo it with the animals. But yeah. but there's no way to in such a world where everything is so uber scheduled and structured. I will never be that guy. And and that's a weakness to some, but that's a strength and something I'm, I'm when I go to sleep at night, I'm cool with that. I'm like, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Do you feel like that philosophy is wearing off on the industry as a whole? In a positive or negative? What do you mean by that? In a positive way. I mean, I hate to say it. I, I don't want to be negative, but it seems like your philosophy is not the norm in the oh, equestrian God. industry. And I'm speaking specifically about that industry, right? You're sort of a little bit outside of the box. And in talking to you, I wish that it was more the norm. I, I, I wish that I had maybe experienced that or I see more people behaving that way. Do you feel like your philosophy and how you teach and operate from an equestrian point of view is wearing off and encouraging more empowerment and more confidence and more inspiration through the generations? Because, you know, we're not getting any younger. I know you've been around for a few years and a lot of these riders have come up through the ranks and are uber successful now. 
do you see that there's been a bit of a tip or a shift through the years? I wouldn't. I wish. But I can't say my way is better. You know, everyone yeah. has to be true to themselves and do it their way. You know, I'm very hard to work with. I know that. Uh, I, I'm definitely unique and I want the kids to have fun, but I'm also really tough on them. So, no, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that it's affecting anyone. I would say that uh, the feedback I get from the people in the top of our sport are, you make it so fun, like they don't even know they're learning. And I always say, right. it, first of all, it has to be safe. If it's not safe, then what the hell are we doing? And then it has to be fun and interesting and challenging. And then I jam as much actual classical information in the cracks as I can. And then it's there bouncing around the brain sometime when they need it or when I touch on it later on. That, you know, it's already there. They have access to it. You know, it's interesting. Uh, as the kids develop, I use the horse show because it's here and there's 40 weeks a year out of 52. Some kids choose to yep. participate. Other kids just say, yep. wow, let that, you know, mess leave town and then we'll, you know, regroup. But the divisions and the levels, especially in the hunter discipline, which is where I kind of relate to, are, you know, kindergarten, first grade, second grade. It's very similar to that. And we use showing as a way to test and measure our progress. Of course, we want to win every class, but we try not to get wrapped up in, you know, when a rider comes out and said, okay, well, I won. There's four jumping classes. I won three, but I'm devastated that that fourth class I screwed up. That's not for me. You know, you can learn from it, but you can't be a train wreck because you beat 37 other kids three times. And then the fourth time you didn't. Right, right, right. You know, that's not reality for me. You can be yeah. appreciative of your successes <laughs> right. and be glad. Perspective, teaching perspective. <laughs> but uh, it has to make sense to me. I'm difficult as a coach to the families and parents where it doesn't make sense. There's thousands of other trainers in this town. There's thousands of other opportunities. And I always say, if I'm, I'm not for everyone. So if I'm not for you, please, I'll give you a great recommendation. Someone else wants your cash more than me. Have at it. Yeah, absolutely. So then where does the animal conservation fit in? How has that been welcomed into your life and developed into what it is now? Well, as my business grew in South Florida and my desire to set up roots, you know, as you touched on earlier, I'm in a long-term relationship, which is probably the most magical, amazing thing that's ever happened to me. I didn't really know it was relationship material until I met this person. And I was able to <laughs> really just be me all the time and good and bad. And I was able to set up roots and, and feel a sense of home. And I've always raised animals, as I said earlier, and grew up. And that was important to me. And started raising different birds and different plants because in South Florida, if you throw a little tiny palm tree that you bought at a grocery store outside, it turns to 30 feet in two years. So everything wants to live outside oh, yeah. <laughs> and grow for the most part. So I raised some birds and all sorts of things. Then we had, in 2017, we had Hurricane Irma come through. And I drive a Mini Cooper. And what I tried to fit in that Mini Cooper with animals and birds, and I had turtles at that point. Unbelievable. <laughs> it just really didn't work. And we evacuated, I think, 30-something horses that we drove up to try on. And all the staff, everyone, you know, we, we just hauled out of here like it was crazy. And I came home to broken cages and a real mess. So I, I really restructured and said, okay, the birds weren't really part of an educational story. They were fun. They were interesting to me. They were pets. Mm -hmm. Let's change this and touch on the turtles and tortoises, which are critically endangered. Some of them are extinct in the wild. And, you know, they don't have to eat every day. So if there's a hurricane, I can stack them in Tupperware containers and I can, you know, it just was an easier uh, solution to, to work with what I wanted to. And if I had to travel, I could go away for a week and it was easier to take care of. And those animals are part of Charlie's animals, right? Is that how it's labeled? I have to back up a little bit. So I was yes, please. heavily involved in the United States Hunter Jumper Association Foundation. And that changed drastically when the former president of the organization moved over to USCF. And then we got a new president the new team in place really wanted that foundation to do things that most of us on the board weren't in line with. So a lot of us were, it got a little messy and uh, 11 of us resigned one day. And that okay. left me empty because the work we had done through the foundation, giving back to riders, uh, giving back to, you know, people whose barns burned down, people whose, you know, uh, farriers that were injured on the job, people that, that 
had given a life to the sport and had nothing. Um, we were able to financially help and educate and work with. Uh, anyway, so that that changed, and it all kind of happened around the same time when I thought, all right, I'm going to do a foundation where we raise money for education and we raise money for the quiet, small organizations out there that no one really knows about. And I don't mind doing the legwork, and I have a lot of crazy friends and a lot of crazy uh, access to amazing kind of mom-and-pop uh, sanctuaries, rescues that do rehabilitation, and a lot of organizations all over the country and the world that give back to animals in need on a real preservation, conservation level, not just cat rescue, for instance. So we started to kind of go that direction. So I use the collection of animals that I have, uh, which I own, as one small piece of that. But the foundation itself was created to uh, really as a as a fundraising mechanism to uh, allow people to donate. You know, it's like a stockbroker. You pay someone and they spend your money wisely. We do that. So I differentiate between the foundation and the animal collection because the last thing I want was for people to say, well, I'm going to, you know, he's got a good job. He can afford to pay for his turtles. I don't want to donate a couple hundred dollars to, you know, buy turtle kibble. So right. the animals themselves are owned by me, supported by me, cared for by me, traded by me. I use them as anyone who wants to come over is, is obviously welcome. It's not an official tour. It's not, uh, you know, it's not a business. There's no admission or anything. You don't even have to make a donation. If you want to come and talk about it, and it changes your life, please come. I'm not sure when I can fit you in. Yeah. Because again, we're crazy, but <laughs> I, I, I always want to put it that way. And it's not, yes. you know, you hear like, oh, well, you have to make a big donation. No, you don't. They're, they're very separate to me, if that makes sense. Yep. Yep. Definitely. So you basically use your, your personal collection of animals to inspire and help teach youth about conservation. And hopefully that leads to some progression with the Moorcroft Conservation Foundation in which you can then donate money to smaller organizations to help them get ahead. Yes. Yeah. We're carefully vetting and evaluating organizations that we know. You know, a lot of like, I'll pick on the Red Cross because they're easy. Sure. You give $100. Well, maybe $1 goes out the door. Yeah. Yeah. And that didn't really feel good to me. And that's one of the things when the USHDA Foundation, I'm going to back up to that. Sorry. Uh, when that was first really interesting when I got involved with that, I think it was really 10% administration and 90% we kicked out the door fast. Right. And that changed over time, obviously. And that was, you know, part of the the whole mess up was, you know, what we wanted the money to do and it ended up not being able to continue. But I'm really careful. Like, I don't want to say to people, great, if you give $100, 70 of it goes to yeah. these animals. And I want to be able to say, you know, we have a great marketing agency, which actually connected us. And mm -hmm. they obviously are in every red cent. But, you know, we if there's a Facebook fundraiser, I'll, I even give to it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so it, 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 we're trying to just get awareness. Well, one thing I will say also, because my collection is rare and unique and, I don't know, kind of crazy, mm -hmm. it has attracted some really interesting, talented YouTube people. Oh, cool. And it's opened up a whole new world. I don't really know that much about YouTubers, but I know a lot of them. And South Florida is home of crazy, somewhat nonsense, you know. So I'm very careful who gets to come in and make a YouTube video. And one guy who lives in Jupiter, who's pretty popular, he was a BMX rider and then he was on ESPN for a while. He came and he did an amazing video here. And I was suspicious, to say the least. And, you know, it's had like oh, 600,000 views. Amazing. We're getting out there. And that's attracted some other ones. There's you know, people from Pennsylvania, Georgia, Florida. Lots of different people want to come through, you know, meet the animals and, and learn and hold them and touch them and, you know, go from there. It's all about networking, right? How networking. And a lot of riders, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, it is. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying not to name drop at all, but, you know, we live in the most amazing. There's a there's a school here called Upper Echelon, and a lot of the riders attend that as kind of an alternative to kind of official public schools when they come down. They work with your your school up north. So I had the classroom over and, 
you know, to have little tiny Mr. Bloomberg running around your garage looking at your turtles. Yeah. You know, it's like, wow, what I'm doing is actually making a difference. And I, again, I'm not trying to name drop, but I was as shocked and as honored to have, you know, been able to reach someone in his circle, mm-hmm. you know, and, and some of the famous riders. I've had a lot of famous riders just walk through here and I just think to myself and smile like, wow, this is this is pretty freaking cool that yeah. I'm allowed to have this collection and and people are interested. Yeah. You know, and they like to talk about it. And that's a tribute to your work, effort, energy and, you know, what you've put into the community. You know, it gives back to you, it gives back to you sometimes. So congratulations. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's, uh, it's cool. Absolutely. I like my life. I'm lucky. Yeah, right. There you go. <laughs> and for a lot of people, it's hard for them to say that I like my life. So that's that's an amazing feat. You know, my goal is to do anything I want and nothing I don't want other than, you know, obviously something you have to do. But I really I don't want to waste time getting trapped doing things that I feel obligated. I would like just like one ounce of that. <laughs> I would like to know more about the animals that you have in your collection. Is that even the correct term? <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a good term. I like that word. So tell me a little bit about the animals that you protect. When I was a kid, uh, we would go to Vermont or, or go on vacation and go away for the weekend. And it always involved water. And it usually involved me on a boat. And when my family was fishing, I was also looking for turtles. And I think I've told a few people this story, but we... We're in Vermont. We took home some turtle eggs, which happened to be snapping turtle eggs, and put them in some sand in the basement, and they dried out to a crisp. And then, you know, back then there was no internet, so I went to the library and Googled, or didn't Google. I went to the library and looked up. Pulled out the encyclopedia. It's so amazing that (laughs) Google is a word, you know, when you think of something, you do that. But anyway, I didn't. I went to the library. and, (laughs) And learned more. So that following year, whenever we went back to that area, we actually... We're playing in the sand and found some more and actually hatched those and raised them and released them. And that was something that was fun. I'm sure it was highly illegal, or it, at least it should be at this point. You know, Vermont right. snapping turtles released in that Connecticut River basin. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I like that. I've always liked turtles and tortoises. And again, when when I was able to get my feet on the ground here in Florida, I've been here now uh, 17 years, I'd say. Mm-hmm. I started with a, a Brazilian species of red-footed tortoise. And what I liked about those is they were large enough to, you know, definitely be not substantial, but they're they're maybe 10 inches long. And interesting enough with their color uh, patterns and dietary needs and, you know, housing requirements that I, I just found them totally engaging and unique and mm-hmm. enjoyed them and started working with them and realized that those were species that are still being kind of, I'm going to say, snuck into the country mm-hmm. under the guise of being farm raised. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they're still coming in. Uh, they may have spent some time at a farm, but before that, they might have actually been, you know, wild animals. Right. You know, they're tortoises. They're not wild. You know, they're not going to bite you or run away. They're, it's not like, you know, putting a raccoon. Right, right. Crate and shipping it in. These guys are pretty sedate. So what I realized is the more of these I could raise and breed, the more pressure I could take off of wild populations. Yeah. So the more that we could kind of pump into the pet trade, which sounds like such a bad term, but it really isn't because it gave me a lot of joy in my life the better a lot of these animals are in the wild. And that just kind of started the process. So I, I have the Brazilian redfoot tortoises, which are really my pets. They're, they're my passion, they're my pets, they're my favorite. And then, again, I, I was really drawn to small, tiny, unique, rare animals in need of conversation. When you go to a zoo or a large facility, you see the, the macrofauna. You know, and no one really talks about there's a four inch uh, black breasted leaf turtle from Vietnam that looks like E.T. You know, okay. those, those are not as popular, but really interesting to me. So I got in some networks with some friends and 
you know, was able to locate a couple of those and actually started to breed them. And, and I've had a couple reproduce here, which is fascinating. So when people come, you know, they're going to see turtles from Brazil. They're going to see uh, tortoises from different parts of Africa, from Vietnam, from Japan, uh, you know, from Wellington, Florida. There's some native species that might have been uh, hatched from eggs that were laid in a driveway and that all eventually raise up until they're solid and then release them on private property. So there's a, there's a big collection of different turtles and tortoises, uh, mostly on the smaller side, mostly on the endangered side. And then there are three skunks at this point. We're home to three uh, former pets, all descented, all neutered or spayed. And, you know, it's a retirement home for them. The two of them are extremely friendly. Uh, one of them is a jerk. And okay. the jerk, we, we <laughs> let be a jerk because why wouldn't we let the male chocolate and white skunk be a jerk? Mm-hmm. And the two black and white females, they had a job at an amusement facility until COVID came. And they were kind of repurposed surrendered pets. So these skunks then went on to a big famous facility. And then when COVID came, they, you know, the animals also were affected, not just the people. A lot of yeah. animals, people got crazy pets to, mm-hmm. to keep them company. And a lot of pets that were out there kind of in the service world were in need of homes. Yeah. So I adopted these two skunks. So we have a total of three and two of which are really friendly. Uh, they climb all over you. They sit in your lap. They're, you know, <laughs> they're, they're very comfortable being involved with you. And the other, we have another mammal. Jeff always says, all right, enough with the turtles. Like, show me something with fur. Fluffy. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm not saying it as well as he did, but but basically, you know, it's it's people that visit maybe want to meet something that isn't a reptile. We don't have yeah. any snakes, by the way. So okay. we have Patagonian maras, which are uh, a rodent, which is a weird word. But Are they like chinchillas? Really guinea pigs. Okay, guinea they're, pigs, they're, go uh, ahead. They're guinea pigs, really. They're, mm-hmm. They look, if I was to describe them, when people come, they say, oh, it looks like a rabbit and a deer crossed. They're huh. long legs, tiny, thin legs, like uh, chopsticks, beautiful, uh, big eyes, medium length ears. Okay. And they're, they're, they grunt like a guinea pig. They, <laughs> their babies are uh, born more like a fawn than, you know, oh, other wow. types of rodents or rabbits. They're, they're like a foal. They're, they're up. Their eyes are open. Yep. They're running around in five minutes. And they're not what you would normally picture those pinkies, you know, that are eyes are closed, like a baby hamster that mm-hmm. takes weeks to become mobile. These guys hit the ground running like a like a foal. Wow. So it's it's very interesting. Uh they're common. They're not really a conservation or preservation species, but it, it's a good conversation. You know, if you want to have an exotic animal and you live in a climate that allows it and uh you know, legally, it's, it's, you know, you're able to, here's a setup that could work. Yeah. There's Facebook groups that dress them in doll clothes and put harnesses on them. I'm, I'm luckily for everyone involved. I'm not that guy. Right. <laughs> uh, I let them live a natural life and, you know, they reproduce and the babies go on to get good homes. And it's just part of a, you know, the, the kids like to go in and feed them and well, the parents too, and, you know, you can touch them and stuff. And then the last animal that's a mammal is uh, a Jeffrey's cat, which is a really tiny, uh, small, wild cat from South America. And the female we have is barely five, maybe maybe five and a half pounds. Oh, and wow. she looks like a bobcat or a leopard and is quite sweet to me. Mm-hmm. And um, honestly, I don't even know how it'll end up. I, I, I wanted them... When I studied them and I went and met some, I thought they were really interesting. They've proven to be wild. They've proven to be uh, a bit of a challenge to, to house and to feed because mm-hmm. they don't eat raw and not just raw, picky raw. Uh, I had a pair. Well, part of the arrangement of getting them was to get a pair. And the male was really wild and really not a fan of me. He hated me. So he kind of nicely moved on to a larger place where he could be more in a breeding group and not be bothered you know we don't have that many people visit but when they do he was he was concerned about activity so he went i found him a great spot 
where he's actually really, really happy. And then the female, which was bottle raised because her mother was a first time mother and basically sucked. So the baby was pulled. And so she was quite socialized that she's getting a little wild and, and she might end up going to a facility where, you know, she can reproduce and be part of a different adventure than I would want to do here. And I'm not a, a cat breeder. Uh, she currently lives with a domestic cat, an all black domestic cat that needed a home. And they're really good friends. But as the Jeffrey's cat needs to, you know, find a new spot, I would, I, I kind of listen to the animals. What's interesting when people come, the turtles and tortoises are pretty easy, but the mammals, you know, it's like if you know about horses, you listen to them, you can read their bodies. I never force them to do anything they don't want to do. Um, if the Patagonia Mars want to be social, they're social. If the skunks say, okay, you know, I've had a couple of people touch me, let me go. We let them go. You know, we're the, the they don't owe me anything, which is great. They're, they're part of a uh, conversation and story. And same with the turtles. If they're fretting a little bit and they're tired of the chaos, then we, we move on. But again, uh, I might have people come twice a month. It's not like a daily thing. Okay. Yeah. It's not like an open door policy where people just come to your house. Oh, God, no. No, the yeah. gate would never open. There you go. <laughs> it just would stay closed. <laughs> and we have the six rescue dogs, so they make it, you know, and Jeff, it's our home, too. And Jeff yeah. works a lot out of out of his home office. And I'm doing a lot of care for the animals and cleaning. You know, turtles and tortoises, you know, aren't the cleanest animals. Um, you change their water and five seconds later, someone's decided to jump in one water dish and <laughs> go to the bathroom. You know, Lovely. for someone to walk in, it, that not to be gross, but that poop could have been there two weeks or yeah. two minutes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. So I yep. do a lot of cleaning and running around before anyone comes. I just want yeah, it to look yeah. really, really nice and, and be part of the story. Sure. So that's the collection and kind of a nutshell. Well, part of a big cause, a bigger cause, right? Yes. Very good. Do tortoises, do you need to will those? Do they? I do. I have a, uh, that's all cared for. Do they live, do all tortoises live for, I don't want to say forever, but they're known to live for a hundred plus years, right? They do everything slowly. Well, they can move actually pretty okay. fast. It's interesting. Like the desert species can zip around, you know, they're designed for hot sand. Yeah. But mostly they do everything slow. They grow slow and that's healthy. You know, people get crazy and try and grow them fast and get them to breeding uh, age or size fast. And that's just not um, how it would be in the wild. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they're in a safe environment, so and they have access to really nutrient dense foods uh, more often than they would maybe find in the wild. So there's a it's easy to overdo it, but um, they do live forever and ever. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I'd say twenty five years to you know hundreds of years. Wow. So some of the some of the species are are I would say twenty five is short lived, and then eighty, a hundred, hundred and fifty or more. You know, they're they're actually true modern dinosaurs. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. You need to have those written in for for their whole lives. Right. A really good friend of mine passed away in November and he had an amazing collection. And he's actually makes an appearance in one of the videos here. You know, he was really smart, too. He knew what he had. He knew kind of an idea of the values of them. He knew what was responsible to have go away right away, you know, alligators, crocodiles, some caiman, they're, they're being placed, some of the easier animals for his family to remember him by and have around for grandchildren and stuff, they're, they're staying, but you know, you, you, it's up to us to lay out a plan and do what's right for the animal and do what's right for, you know, the people that, that um, are stuck behind without us. Yeah, for sure. Charlie, it's more than an interesting story that you have, and I wish that we had more time to dive into it. I'm uh, I'm super excited for you and everything that you have accomplished and achieved and for everything that is possible in your future as well. Tell us a little bit how we can get in touch with you through the Moorcroft Conservation Foundation, if we so choose. There's a pretty good uh, way to reach us at Facebook. It's Charlie Moorcroft. There is a Moorcroft Conservation page also. There are two Instagrams, my personal one, uh, Moorcroft Charles, or Moorcroft Conservation on Instagram. There's a website, moorcroftconservation.org, maybe moorcroftconservationfoundation.org. It, it should come up. Okay. And then also YouTube. YouTube, I keep going back to that, which is odd. 
YouTube is such a great way to, you know, watch video representation. And when you go to the website, there's different links to the videos that have been made here. Mm-hmm. It's a unique, it, people call it a facility. It's not a facility. It's, it's our home. It's my crazy weird collection. Yeah. Again, I, I try to keep it as clean and manageable. I just sent away two boxes of animals yesterday. Mm-hmm. People will send different species, young ones to grow up here for X amount of time and let people, especially in the winter, if they can get in to see, just get a wide variety of sizes and shapes and colors and locations and stories. And then as they grow up, they're sent out to breeding colonies or friends. And and one of the questions I should mention is people always ask, okay, well, are these animals going back to the wild? And the answer is no. 99% of things in this room will not go back to the wild. Right. So those are not actually conservation animals. They're more preservation animals. And sadly, some of the animals I have will only be preserved in captivity mm-hmm. and not conserved in the wild unless there are large tracts of land purchased, which we support some organizations that do that, where they buy land uh, in natural areas in different parts of the world and set up a natural assurance colony out there in the fields versus uh, in captivity. There's one species of Chinese box turtle that might have a hope of being put back out into the wild. Mm -hmm. Uh, But most of them, once you've you've brought them into captivity and possibly introduced different pathogens, it's a little bit frowned upon or, you know, maybe irresponsible to go put things back out into the wild. Even the, the turtles that I raise and uh, get out of eggs here I put on private land yeah and I'm just really careful but I also send away a lot you know I'm I'm not a rescue Mm -hmm. but I do rescue animals and place them there's a great rescue in Georgia uh, Turtle Haven and Mm -hmm. if someone said you know oh my barn manager has this turtle it was her boyfriend's sounds like I'm picking on guys and not no they broke up (laughs) she's gonna throw it in the canal I look, it doesn't belong in South Florida in the canal. We have enough issues with non-native, invasive, or Mm non-native, non-invasive species. We're not going to throw it in the canal. Give it to me, I'll find it at home. There's a a lot of amazing networks out there, which I'm fortunate enough to be included in. So we all uh, help each other out. Awesome. And now we've come to what some would call the very best part of the show our segment appropriately named What's and Why's. It's where we get to ask our guests some questions that inquiring minds want to know. So without further ado, I bring you the What's and Why's for your listening pleasure. So my first question for the What's and Why's segment is, who do you look up to and why? Ah, that's an awesome question. There was a trainer named Emerson Burr who I looked up to. And, well, I need a moment. (laughs) Absolutely. There was a great trainer in Connecticut named Emerson Burr who didn't give a crap about the parents. He only cared about the kids and the ponies. And he was just super at what he did. And the kids all loved him. And he, I hear about him even now. You know, oh, my God, you remind me of Emerson. Or, oh, I rode with Emerson. Did you ever know him? And, you know, he's someone that I would love to be more like. And mm-hmm. I hope I can make as big a difference as he was able to. Right. Um, what's something that brings you joy and why? Outdoors, air, sunshine, the wind, uh, natural environments, you know, people smiling, joy. All of those things really affect me. I'm, I'm pretty simple. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I don't require much to be happy or be joyful. When you look back through your life, what decision brings you the most happiness and why? Sadly, leaving Connecticut, my home state, I actually spoke with a sports psychologist Mm -hmm. and I'd gone through on my own that, you know, living in Connecticut with a business, I had lots of broodmares and some stallions and lots of, I I ended up having too many animals, which is so common and so easy to do. And I looked at the calendar and I counted how many months I enjoyed being there and how many Mm -hmm. months were just severe hell and how many months I couldn't wait to get through and how every September I'd start to get a little bit down and anxiety. Um, You know, the daylight's going, winter's coming, everything's kind of blooming, gray days, 
and I was really fortunate enough to speak with a sports psychologist who pretty much just gave me permission to look at what options might work better for me mm-hmm. and to take care of myself. And I bounced around in a few states and then ended up being in South Florida. And I, I uh, it's interesting. This is my home now. My, my mm-hmm. Connecticut is no longer my home. Right. It's where I grew up and I have family and so many roots there, but it's not home. Isn't it amazing what happens, the change that you go through when either somebody gives you permission or you give yourself permission to just move forward with something? I have to say, I'm not so good at taking care of myself. And to <laughs> have someone ask, she was amazing. She didn't ever say, here's what you should do. She was just genius enough to ask questions in a specific order or a specific way that helped me get to the answers that uh, would work for me. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was just an amazing experience and exercise that I would, I'd recommend that anyone who could do that should definitely do it. Just yeah. learning to yeah. not put yourself first, but learning to just say, this is what would work better. Listen to yourself, me. maybe. Yeah, just listen to yourself. I joked earlier about never doing, never wanting to do anything I don't want to do. You know, I joke about that and that's my motto, but we all do stuff. You know, we all get dragged into stuff that doesn't really feel good to you. But my my goal is to do less and less and less of that. And I'm 55 now, and I'm so established and so much more confident. And the other thing I would say, you know, to maybe the younger generation is just throw some balls and be confident and believe in yourself and just just do it enough already. Enough already. I love that. (laughs) What's something that you feel that people get wrong about you and why? Uh, People in the past have. One example, I went to a restaurant and someone said, oh, I always thought you were such an asshole till I met you. <laughs> I get tunnel vision and I get driven. And one thing that uh, I would say about me, maybe at horse shows, is you get kind of in the groove and you get into a mentality where it's eat or get eaten. And that's not right. And that's something that I'm a little bit embarrassed about. But I get uh, into self-preservation and I can wear some serious armor. You know, it's a little, I wouldn't say bullying because that's such a weird word right now, but, but you, you definitely protect yourself at the horse shows. You know, if, if I'm being called and my rider's going in five out, I'm going five out. And if there's a chance to go four, right. I might even grab it, but I'm not going to be pushed or stepped on or squashed. And it's so funny. I get all mama bear about it. Not, not for me as a human, but because of the rider. Like I owe it to sure. them to have their back. And, you know, at, at this, level in the sport there's a lot of strong personalities and there's a lot of pushback from trainer to trainer and i'll go head to head with anyone i don't care yeah you and i sound like we're cut from the same cloth so i think i'm looked at as tougher than than i am because i i think of myself as kind of a gentle person and other people think of me as a little bit of a you know bulldozer got it got it the kids don't it's funny you know like i'll go through the grocery store and like random little kids always wave and smile and say hi to me. And I don't, I don't even know them. And Jeff would be like, why do kids like you? Like what? No kids talk to me. I'm like, well, you're scary. I just well, do my thing. I buzz around. That takes me to my last question. So my last question is who would you like to hear on what's your why as a guest and why? I'd like to put some thought into that. I know that's a cop out answer, but I would like to, you know, there's so many amazing people that are unheard of and un you know, the unsung heroes in our world. Yeah. I think everyone has a fascinating story and everyone has something to add. That's our philosophy. That's exactly our philosophy. Your gut is to say, okay, well, let's get like the real, the famous people out there. But, you know, uh, there's so many super interesting, brilliant, genius people out there that I wouldn't, I wouldn't even know how to single anyone out other than just, I mean, I just like listening to people getting to know them and Everyone's story is unique and different and equally fascinating and equally as relevant. Well, I don't think that's a cop-out answer at all. I think that's uh, that's honest and it's your opinion and it shares our philosophy that we believe in. Everyone's got an interesting story and they've got something to say and something to share. And we're interested in talking to those people that are willing to join us and do that, like yourself. Thank you very, very much for being here. It's uh, It's been more than a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was fun. Horse Show listeners, listen up. We have something special coming and coming soon. 
What's Your Why has a new collaboration we're excited to bring you. We've been working tirelessly with the Southbound Saratoga Management Group to exclusively host a special series of podcast episodes. Over the next few months, we'll be supporting the brainchild of the Saratoga Horse Show, Women in Business Spectacular. It's the first ever horse show accredited with being created by women, operated by women, benefiting women's health, and showcasing women in business. Download, follow, like, and share as we bring you a new episode every month in support of this amazing event that you don't want to miss. Stay tuned. Do you like how you're hearing today's episode? I don't mean how you're listening to it, but how you're hearing it. Whether you're driving in your car or listening on some pods, there's one thing that I'm certain of, that this podcast has been produced with the most enjoyable hearing experience possible. For those of you that know me, you know that these skills are most certainly not in my repertoire. So for that, What's Your Why has Twisted Spur Media Solutions to thank. Twisted Spur is an all-encompassing solution-based media company that's everything magic. Offering digital solutions in podcast and audiobook editing and production, online course and membership design and development, in addition to content creation, online paid advertising management, and project planning, it's a one-stop shop of mad skills that Heather and her team bring to every project they work on. I can and will speak from personal experience when I say that Heather is a true advocate for quality, and you won't find a better solution for your digital project than Team Twisted Spur. If you like what you hear or even just want to nose around, check them out at twistedspurmedia.com, where the process is easy and the solution is even better. I'd like to thank everyone for joining us for this episode of What's Your Why? Our listeners, guests, and our sponsors, too. It's our hope that you enjoyed your time with us and possibly gained some new perspective as well. It's said that we can learn something new every day if we just listen, and that knowledge has a beginning, but no end. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, be safe, be well, and remember, always leave people better than you found them. A Twisted Spur Media Production.